Welcome to episode 42 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is once again Travis Howes. Now this is part two of a three-part series with Travis. Uh, if you missed last week's episode, episode one, go back and listen to that because they're all going to kind of come together. We'll conclude with this next week with episode uh, 43, part three of the series. So on this particular episode, um, Travis, who by the way is former U.S. Marine, firefighter, police officer, uh, was part of the Charleston 9 recovery efforts, uh, comedian, and, and now author of Create Your Own Light, Finding Post-Traumatic Purpose, which is available now on Kindle. On this particular episode, we're going to talk about him becoming a cop for North Charleston, that whole hiring process, which was much different than what he was used to with the fire departments. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Waffle House, one of my favorite places. Uh, he actually talks a lot about the police and public divide that is certainly going on in this country right now. We're, you know, we recorded this in, in early June. We'll talk about him getting fired from North Charleston Police Department and then his return to Charleston Fire, where he had a good few years and then the Sofa Superstore fire happened and it all kind of went downhill from that. So, And he'll touch on that Charleston 9, the, the aftermath in this episode. So... Without further ado, let's tag Travis back into here. Welcome, everyone, to the 25 Live. With me again is my pal, Travis Howe, part two. So where we Suck left off last up. time. You yes. fucked my name up. How? It's Howe's. Like, how's it going? How? You said that, how. That's what I said. You said how. We can record this. We'll go back. Travis Howe's. Whatever. Can you say my last name? Bernicka. Yeah. Bernicka. Bernica, you're see. I don't feel so bad now. I was reading it actually. <laughs> All right, so where we left off last episode is you were having a blast, being a Charleston firefighter, being a cowboy, um, and then you decided, hey, I want to be a cop. What? What's up with that? Why? Why do you leave if you're having such a good time? That's the million dollar question, man. Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a man of mystery, I suppose. I, uh, I knew early on in life that I didn't want my life to be just one chapter in a book. I wanted to have multiple chapters and, um, I've always been about opportunity. I feel like when opportunity presents itself, you, you go with it. And that's what I did. Um, I loved being a fireman. I love my, I love my crew. You know, I was with my best friend at the time. Louis Mulkey was my engineer. Um, had a great captain. I had a great third driver, which is an assistant engineer in Charleston. We were fighting fire left and right down there. We were having amazing time. And yeah, I quit and became a police officer just like that my, within my first year. Um, what happened was I met a guy at the gym who was a cop. And uh, if you look at my past backgrounds, it's I, I like these, I guess, adrenaline style jobs and professions. I was just drawn to that as a young man. And now I'm fat, old and lazy. I'm not, not so much, but, um, he would, he would come in, this cop would come in and I told him I was fireman and we, we developed this, you know, rapport. He would just start kind of talking about his experiences as, as a police officer in, in, in the joint adjacent city, uh, North Charleston, which back then was a very violent city. Uh, it was fifth most violent city in the nation per capita. And he would tell me stories that I wasn't, you know, we were both in emergency services, but I would get a different sense of action from his point of view than what we were accustomed to, you know? And I kind of 
I don't know, I started gravitating towards that the more we spoke and I went and I did a ride along with him one day and, and that day I did that ride along and I got in that police car and I actually saw from a police officer's perspective their day, I was like, I, I got to try this. So I did, I applied and, and the um, hiring process was just a little bit different. They actually, I'm glad you <laughs> they said I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, they didn't say just come on in and uh, just pat me on the back. It wasn't like that at all, man. That was actually a very grueling, probably more of what you're, you were accustomed to. Uh, I had to take a test. I had to get psychological evaluation. We had to do um, a background test. We had to do um, a lie detector polygraph test. You do all these crazy things, and it was exhausting. And one day I got the call. I was actually got uh, – I got the call, and it was uh, – got offered the job. So – as a young man, I said, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it now. And I've always been about, about that when you're young. It's like, look, if you, you do the things you want to do when you're young to figure out exactly who you want to be, where you need to be, right? Sure. So I did it, and I, I left Charleston Fire Department, but I left that door open because I, I did a good job while I was there. Um, I made a lot of really, really good relationships while I was there. Go ahead. I, I can well, see that you're dying. Well, no, what, what was when you were leaving? What were the guys telling you? Because I'm sure they had to be screwed. Oh, that I was you. a piece of shit. Um, I mean, my buddy Lewis was in my ass. He was, so Lewis was a ball breaker. We'll talk about him later. Um, he was my my friend that was killed in the Sofa Superstore fire, and um, along with my eight other friends. But Lewis was one of my best friends that I had at the time because we spent so much time in the firehouse together, but Lewis was just breaking my balls, calling me a loser, a piece of shit. You know, he's like, how could you turn your back on the fire? You know, just breaking my balls, but he understood, you know, and he, he, he thought, he's like, dude, you're going to get fired so fast because I was a jokester. And that's actually, he was, he was right. I did get fired. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he predicted the future. I lasted two years and they were like, you get the fuck out of here. But <laughs> you, I showed you earlier, um, you were, you know, you, you were wearing a hat when we started and I, I said, I got a hat for you. And I pulled out the Waffle House hat. Oh yeah. Yes. And cause I, I took my boys there for the first time the other day and uh, they were, they said 10 by 10 out of 10. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, just wait till you guys drink. And it's like 2 AM. <laughs> It'll be yeah. a 11. They'll turn it all the way up to 11 out of 11. Yeah. But <laughs> go ahead. I oh, that Waffle gonna, House hat, man. I, brings me back to when I was a police officer, we got dude, the Waffle House always had action going on where I was. We had a, we had a, a nightclub that would let out on Thursday nights. So the Waffle House would uh, hire off duty police officers because this yes. place would get crazy. I remember one night we were working a shooting right behind the, in the parking lot behind the Waffle House. And as me and the other officer went out back, the shooting happened while we were there. So we go out back, we're tending to this patient. And then all of a sudden you hear tires squealing and then you hear a bunch of shots firing off the people that just shot him went by the Waffle House and shot up the Waffle House. <laughs> and then we get into this big chase, um, caught these guys in the woods with the dogs and everything. And it was just like, yeah, that was just, that was just one 10 minute period of, of my time as a police officer in, in a very tough city. Well, you, you talk about how um, you were an aggressive cop um, and there was, they were kind of had the mentality of they more or less wanted you to hang out at Waffle House and just take your calls instead of being proactive. But before I even go into that, I want to share my Waffle House stuff with you. Please. It's, it's fun. Please do. Waffle House. So uh, 
years ago before this digital music stuff where you just you know uh hit you know throw a dollar in and press the buttons for what song you want the sound sound tunes or whatever it is now do you remember the old school like 90s cd jukebox yep i sure do waffle house always had one in there and on the very left side uh it would have all these waffle house songs like it was like a waffle house album and it was like there's raisins in my toast <laughs> there, and birch chili and waffle house anthem and and all this kind of stuff horrible songs i'd be that asshole that would get change and throw it in there as i'm leaving and punch a bunch of songs in and run out the door <laughs> so all whoever, shitty music <laughs> whoever's left in that <laughs> that restaurant at that point in time has got to hear about birch chili damn man you probably led directly to some like domestic disputes your actions like some guy pissed some guy off and he went home and i don't know if i'd admit that shit man i well i can always edit this out (laughs) no leave it in no it's that's good they still have it but it's not you have to actually search waffle house and it'll come up and it's not it's just not as fun man i love the waffle house and it's um as a comedian when we're on the road that's the only thing that's open and we, you know, we get done with these comedy clubs late at night. You, you don't get out of there until like one o'clock in the morning. And it's like, hey, man, let's go hit that Waffle House. And it's hard because I'm, I'm big into fitness. And it's, um, I love taking care of myself. But that time of night, it's like, do I want to go back to my hotel and really have this protein shake? Or do I want those hash browns smothered and covered with, uh, with a patty Scat- melt? Scattered? And, yes. And a uh, chocolate chip waffle and with a big glass of sweet tea. That's my go-to. <laughs> So. All right. So going back to you being the police officer, again, there you are, you're being aggressive. You're actually being proactive. And that was frowned upon. Well, so it, being proactive was not frowned upon. Here's the part. Being overly proactive was frowned upon. Okay. As a young police officer, um, working in the city I worked in, there was no shortage of felony arrests to be made. I'm telling you. It was just, it was everywhere. We were surrounded by um, crime. I mean, it it was no secret. It was just very, very tough city back then. So we would go out and, you you know, you'd have the old cops that, you know, I can equate it to or compare it, if you will, to being a fireman, right? The old firefighters don't really care about fighting fire anymore. They've done it. You know, they're like, hey, don't come here and wish that shit on, on us. We just kind of want to do our job. It's and true. old police officers, same way. Like, look, we're here. We, we'd rather just ride around, listen to some music, not get in any shit. But you can't tell a young cop that, man, because we go there. We really think our heart is in the right place, man. We think, all right, I'm going to save the world. And that's where my heart was. I thought every, every, um, every drug seizure was like getting closer to just cutting the cartel off. <laughs> That's not the case, man. It's like, yeah, this dime bag will show you, you know? Um, well, back then, car chases were huge in our city and, and we were allowed to chase cars for stupid stuff. I mean, and, and we thrived on that as young police officers. Like, all right, if they're gonna run, we're gonna trace, tra- or run them down. We're gonna arrest them. We're gonna get them in jail. And you would be surprised at how many people were running back then. I mean, we got into so many car chases. It was unreal. It was almost like a movie. 
it was unbelievable to be honest with you and i was only a police officer for two short years and i cannot i could start talking right now and i'd never shut up about the two years of stuff that that i had to see and witness and it, it i think it was important it helped mold me into the person i am it helped me understand people better you know what i mean it helped me really see what communities go through especially in the time that we are going through right now with this country and the the divide between police and the public right now i i've been on both sides i see it um i can't even it's crazy i hate where this country is right now you know i'm very much pro-police but i'm very much pro-human being too you know what i mean just because i work in a violent city doesn't mean that we went around doing that dumb shit that that those cops did you know that that i um excuse me two seconds thank you thank you Matthew. i had to i didn't want to get off the air i had to get my wife to i had to text her when you were talking to me bring me a protein shake i'm dying nice um hang on Spot. chocolate yeah that's no waffle house but it'll work <laughs> so i understand the need for reform and for change and i i was fortunate enough to work with so many wonderful police officers that their hearts were in the right place their minds were in the right place and they didn't go around covering up anything that another cop would do it's, it's not like people think i guess what well my experience wasn't like that anyway when we as cops if you saw something wrong they reported it. I mean, we had cops telling on cops left and right, and there were cops getting fired and stuff. Shit, I got fired, but I didn't do anything wrong, and we'll talk about it. It's for something very stupid. But anyway, we got into a lot of action back then, and that was, it was very interesting, but I got to see a side of something I wasn't used to, and that's politics. There were no politics as a firefighter in the Charleston Fire Department. At least I didn't see them. We were encouraged to be aggressive we were encouraged to go do our jobs what we were being paid to do and there was no blowback from that but as a police officer you start getting complaints people will complain on you for being aggressive yeah look man sometimes you have to get aggressive especially when you're fighting a man that has a gun on him okay i've been in multiple fights with guys with guns in their possession on them in their hands and it's not pleasant it they're dis they will fucking kill you if you're pleasant about it. I got, I don't write about this in the book. My, my wife asked why I didn't. And, and, I, and I chose to put a different story in over this one. I don't know why, because this is a real good story. I almost had my life taken as a cop one night. I'm not going to say that the guy's name, um, but I remember it very vividly. He was on top of me beating me. Uh, I caught him in possession of cocaine and he was, I didn't know it at the time, but he was going to go back to prison. He was, um, if he received another um, criminal charge, he was going to prison. He was in violation of his probation. When I went to arrest him for the cocaine possession, he turned on me, hit me so fast and was on top of me within seconds. And he was beating the life out of me. I mean, it happened so fast. It was so unexpected. And he was ripping my gun out of my holster, right? And we had a double retention holster, but somehow he, manipulated it in the process of beating me he manipulated it to where it was coming out of my holster and they teach you in the academy if someone gets your gun they're going to kill you with it 90 percent of officers are executed with their own police with their own weapon if it gets pulled with them 
So what they teach you is they teach you with both hands, you hold on to that weapon for dear life. Well, the bad part was he was beating me so hard in my head, I was starting to lose consciousness, okay? So I was defending my head with one hand, holding my weapon with the other one, but he was so much stronger than me. And out of nowhere, I, I guess I had called for help over the radio. At some point during the struggle, I, I, I was able to get it out. An officer just showed up in the nick of time and, and, and got this guy off of me. And what happened was, guy ended up going back to prison, but what happened was he told the investigators um, that he was, he was going to kill me because he didn't want to go back to prison. That's what I'm talking about. It's like, so what do, you think I, what do you think happened after that call? Do you think I went back home? No, I had to finish the rest of my shift. So after this guy goes to jail, and now you have to go to a disturbance call where you literally were just about to be executed in the street. Now you have to put your kid gloves on and make sure you watch what you say to two people who are fighting one another. And then when you show up on scene, they both turn on you. They called for your help. Now you're there to help them. And they're turning on you because one of them hit their spouse and now you have to lock them up in domestic situations are fucking violent man and now when you pull the cuffs out because the law states i got to arrest you because you hit your spouse now you're going to arrest him and now the other spouse turns on you now they both hate you okay now you lock this one up take them to jail do you think i go home no now i have to go commit a traffic stop because someone almost hit somebody because they're not paying attention or whatever you pull this car over now they're cussing you out it's hard to maintain a certain level of professionalism. And that's just in a, in, a, in, a, in a two hour window. You know what I mean? And I'm not excusing police officers behavior, but what I'm saying is a lot of folks really don't understand by the time they get to interact with that cop, what that cop has been through that day, that just that day, not let alone his whole fucking career. And what the cop doesn't understand is what that person they're interacting with has had to go through that day or their whole life. So what you, what you have is you have this, um, this beast, if you will, that's coming to a head, two people who are extremely emotionally charged meeting for the first time, right? And you're greeted with a fuck you or something like that. And it's just a spark that ignites this fire. It's like, if you walk into your house today, you had a bad shift, you walk in and your wife says, Good morning, Jim. And you go, fuck you. What do you think is going to happen? We got to be able to take a step back. And I'm not trying to get political, but we, we, we just got to be able to take a step back and have a, a better understanding of one another before I think we can grow as a community and a, and a, and a, and a culture with police and, and the public, if that makes sense. It does. No, I'm with you. I don't know if I got sidetracked there. but No, you, I mean, it's, uh, it's on the news right now. I yeah. mean, I mean, it's, it's newsworthy. Um, it's, it's been newsworthy. It just hasn't been talked about. So yeah. no, we need to talk about, it. we need to have the discussion. I'm on board with you doing that. It's, you know, it's one of those things. It's, this has been a, um, a fight that's been going on forever and it's not going to be an overnight. There's not gonna be an overnight solution. We could talk to a blue in the face about this, but to answer your question, to get back to your, your, your point was I was very proactive and so were the police officers that I worked with it, but that doesn't mean we were unprofessional, right? What happens is you're so proactive and you, you make very good quality felony arrests, but at the same time, these people that you're fighting that have guns, 
they start to complain on you. Their family members complain on you. And rightfully so, I guess, you know, they, cause they don't see the whole picture. All they know is so-and-so was arrested and there was a struggle that ensued. Um, so that when the complaints start rolling in to an extent, the department's like, all right, you guys are getting into way too much shit out there. Y'all need to slow down. And that's what happened in my case. They literally said, pulled me into the office and told me, do not go out and be proactive, take your calls. And what they were trying to do and understand, they were trying to protect me in a sense, but they were also trying to protect the department. They didn't want to field those complaints. They didn't want to hear it. They wanted you to be seen, not heard kind of thing. And I was too young at the time. I took it as an insult. Like, wait a minute, you want me to drive by crimes that I'm actually witnessing happen? Like, and I don't mean like a fucking jaywalker. I'm talking real shit. And I just couldn't turn a blind eye to that. And I left that meeting and went and got into a, and got into a damn chase. And it, it cost me my job because I didn't heed the warnings from, from the top. So being over proactive can cost you, especially when you're warned, Hey, calm down. But you can't tell a young cop, you can't tell a young cop shit. Now they thought I, it was correct me if I'm wrong. They, it sounds like they felt like it was better for you to be less proactive. Just take your calls and yes. that way not get complaints and be on the radar that way. That yeah. Because you got to, you, you got to think, man, when we were going out back then, I mean, we were, I worked one of the most violent, it wasn't one of, I'm sorry. It was the most violent neighborhood in the state of South Carolina at the time. Okay. That's the area I was assigned to in the fifth most violent city of the nation per capita at the time. Dude, it wasn't a cakewalk. People hated you. Rightfully so, I guess, to an extent, some of them had uh, interactions with police that maybe were inappropriate. So they hate the shit. I would, I would hate people if, if they were inappropriate to me. Not, not all the people in that neighborhood were bad, but there was enough crime in that neighborhood to keep us so busy that we were seen all the time. We were hands-on. You had to interact with these people. And, and unfortunately they, for both sides, like it, the, the relationship was uh, very strained. So let me ask you this. Um, you went from being a firefighter mm -hmm. where everybody generally likes you. The public likes you. Yes. You're the hero. You're the good guy. Yes. You put on the other uniform. Man, it was, a, it, was a, it was a reality check. Like I couldn't even, I can never explain to somebody. You are literally loved as by everyone. And then you're riding in your car and you feel like, hey man, I'm just here to do, try to do some good in the world. But you don't get that feeling. You really feel like the enemy. Um, and I'm just, the the. I can't even compare it to how these police officers have to police today, what they must be feeling because it is, it is very, very charged environment right now. It wasn't, it wasn't as charged when I was a police officer. I was 15 years ago, but you could certainly feel the tensions back then too. Um, yeah, it was tough, but we tried to do the right thing. Um, you tried to make quality arrests. You didn't let skin tone or any of that come into factor. We, we just saw it as a right and wrong thing. I, I stood beside police officers of all races, creeds, and we, we policed in communities of all races and creeds. And I never personally witnessed someone specifically single somebody out because of, of race or anything like that. Not, 
it was never verbalized. It was never insinuated. Not that I saw. I mean, we, we just went out to do a job. And if you were, if you were wrong, you're wrong. If you were right, you're right. And, and we were respectful, you know, it wasn't, but it was just, a, it was a different world, man. And what I got fired for was something so silly is we didn't have the body cameras on back then. And I got, I got fired because another officer said that I asked him to lie about where some evidence was found in a car during a traffic stop. And it was just silly because in the state of South Carolina, it was, it was illegal drugs. Um, if you find something in a, in a vehicle in the state of South Carolina, it's the owners, regardless of where it's the owner of the vehicles, wherever it was found in the car, if no one else claims it. So this, in this instance, there was a small bit of, um, drug evidence found in the back seat. <clears throat> and that officer said, Hey, too bad it wasn't up front. We could say it was a driver's. And all I was trying to do was educate him. I was like, it's in his, it's in his car. I don't care if it's under his floor mat under the back seat, under the front seat, in the trunk. I don't care. We'll say it was wherever because it's his. Nobody else claimed it. And he took what I said is we'll say it was wherever as me asking him to lie. So he went straight to internal affairs. And this was literally just after I was or told to stop getting into shit. And they took that. And this is before body cameras and, and our car cameras. We didn't have car cameras back then. And um, that would have saved me. But it would turn into a he said, he said. And... I was fired on the spot immediately and um, they pulled my credentials as a police officer and I was, dude, I was getting dope seizures. I didn't need to lie over some bullshit crack charge or anything like that. I mean, it was just, it was so stupid. Um, but I was able to clear my name years later because that officer turned out to be not only just a liar, he had been fired from multiple departments for lying. And the state police academy ultimately overturned that. And I was like, thank you, but there's no way I'd go back into law enforcement. Well, I mean, that's actually, I was kind of curious about that. Let's pretend, let's role play, if you will. Ooh. Maybe, maybe it sounds better. Whoa, <laughs> wait a second. No, let's act like they, the, the officers there, the, the chiefs and everybody, they enjoyed your, uh, they're appreciative of you being proactive. Yes. Let, let's say that they did that. And let's say you never got in trouble. You were, you were given the thumbs up for doing that. Would you see yourself still today as a police officer? Or do you think you would have got burnout or whatever no, and gone elsewhere? There's no way. Um, and that's why I think I talk about redirection a lot in life. And I think we're redirected at, at points in our life for certain reasons, because I think so many people try to stay where they are because it's comfortable. And I think the universe tries to re redirect them at times, but we fight it. Me being fired was a redirection in my life. And at the time I was very pissed off. I was pissed for years and I held a grudge for years, but that police chief turns out did me the biggest favor of redirecting me there's no way I would have stayed in the police force because I I came from the fire department like we talked about where you're appreciated and then I was in something where you're not appreciated and you're constantly having to justify everything you do and explain everything you do for and and I get it man rightfully so because they want to make sure that you're not being the way that a lot of the cops are portrayed. They, 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 the police departments are really doing a good job of trying to keep that shit out of their system, but some slip through the cracks. 
They just, it's inevitable. There's so many that some, somebody will slip through the crack and ultimately make a mistake that's going to cause some shit like we got going on right now. I don't know a police officer alive that condones what happened. It, it's, it's bullshit, you know, and we need to speak out against that. So, but no, there's no way I, I could, I could police in today's society. I don't even understand. I commend these cops so much for even putting that uniform on now. I don't understand how they do it because every one of them has a target on their back. They're hated. And it's like, they don't stand a chance. And I honestly, I know them. I don't know every single one of them, but I know what they're trying to do, man. They just want good in the world too. But a lot of folks don't, don't see that. They don't know that human side of the police. Like we talked earlier, we put on this armor. They don't, they don't get to see the human side of police officers. And it's unfortunate because they are really, really good people. Absolutely. You know, I don't know how it is. I know you were a Charleston firefighter, then it was North Charleston, then you were a police officer. But where I'm at, the police and fire are close. We're on the same page. We were too. We're we're family. I know it's not that way out everywhere, but I would take my police cruiser and go sit at the firehouses sometimes and just hang out and talk with the dudes and play video games. You know what I mean? Just just stop in and shoot shit with them. You know, grab coffee and and talk shit and be like, yeah, I used to be one of y'all. I used to be able to sit here and watch this TV, but I got to go down here and get shot at. I'm gonna see y'all here in a little bit. You would have been perfect for a, a neighboring jurisdiction here, where they're they're both or they're they're police, fire, and EMS all in one. There's oh, wow. safety force. They do it all. Oakwood. Come come back. Fuck that. <laughs> you have to shave. It, no, that's that's exactly why I would never do anything professional. <laughs> Cause dude, if you don't have a beard, honestly, it's it's hard to respect a man without a beard. So <laughs> I need you to grow yours out so I can be a little bit more respectful. I'm on vacation starting today. It'll give me some time. I'll give you a day by day progression. Well, let's, let's, you know what, let's just cut this off and get back. Call me back when you got a beard. (laughs) I like this new policy with police with beards though, man. I I saw a couple the other day. I was like, all right, man, I like, I like what you're doing there. Nah, I'm just kidding. I I just couldn't go back to shaving because I got a fat face and I honestly, I look like a little 12 year old if I shave, but see this gray hair, I got all this gray hair. You're distinguished. But if I shaved, I'd look like the most stressed out 12 year old you've ever seen. You'd be like, what has that kid been through? So Charleston PD yeah. shows you the door. North Charleston. North Charleston, sorry. Um, and you just got to make a phone call. Man, I pick up the, I literally pick up the phone and called chief out of uh, Charleston Fire Department. And as soon as he answered, he knew who I was. Say he's Travis house. He just, Hey man, how's it going? How you liking being a cop? I was like, I don't. He's like, why not? I was like, I just got fired. And he said, why'd you get fired? And I told him, and I was like, any chance I can come back to being a fireman? You know what he fucking told me? When do you want to go get sized up for your uniforms? And how, like long, how, long, how long was this since you, since you left? Since I left the police department? Yeah. For, oh no. Since you left the fire department the first time. Oh, it was two years, two years, two years. Two years. I, I was so fortunate to where a kid on engine 16 had just left Charleston fire department. He just left and, and the chief goes, I got to open in right now in engine 16. When can you get, go get size for your uniforms? And it was that fast. I went and got size for uniforms and I 
within a week, week or two, I was, I don't remember the exact time frame. I was, I was back on the fire department sitting on engine 16 on the West side. You, you didn't have to do that hell week again? No, not at all. I'd already been through it. Once you go through it, you're, you're good. You're bathed. Yeah, man. They, they christen you. You're good. And that was part of it. Cause he was, he would have had to wait to put on another rookie class. All right. He would have had to wait for several more openings before they could afford to do a rookie class. So he's like, Hey, I got one open and I got a guy right now who I know is, is good to go. And he told me, he's like, Travis, you did a great job when you were here. He said, just don't leave me again this time. And I was like, you got it. And that's why, I mean, I, I love that chief. And I, I'm, I don't really say his name just out of, it's not out of anything wrong, was, but it's it just kind of more of a protection thing because, you know, we later had that fire that, that killed our guys and a lot of guys had spoke ill about him. And uh, I don't have a bad word to say about the man. He gave me nothing but opportunity, you know, and we, yeah, we had guys get killed, but unfortunately we all know the risk going into this job and it's easy to be jaded and it's easy to say what someone else should have done when you didn't have to make the fucking call in the first place. You know what I mean? Yeah. We as a culture in Charleston fire department were aggressive. And you know, the, the crazy thing is we all prided ourselves on that. And then when that fire bit us in the ass and killed nine of our guys, a lot of people turned on each other. Well, we shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't. And it's like, wait, where was that fucking mentality before this happened? You know what I mean? Speak up when, when, when it's time to speak up, not after something happens, speak up before when you know something's a problem, speak up about it. And we can use that in today's society right now. Like everybody that's speaking up against cops. Hey, we know there's a fucking problem with whatever's going on in with culture and law enforcement, let's speak up about it. Let's address it now before it becomes a fucking problem later. Yeah. So do you think that, I mean, back then, was it really, if you were given a choice, it was tradition over progression or change? hundred percent. We were a very traditional department. We were, we're old school to the point where the captain's word is God. You don't question it. Never ever, ever, you never question your captain. Whatever he said went, you stood up when a chief walked into the room, you walk outside of your, um, your firehouse, more than three feet of the threshold of where the engine or the ladder truck is, you better have your dress cover on. I mean, it was a very traditional department. We absolutely loved it. And we loved the, the history. We loved the tradition. Um, nobody came at you with change. Nobody. We knew only having two men on a ladder truck sometimes was wrong, but you don't fucking dare speak out against that because, hey, you want to be a part of this fire department or not? Is, if you is don't, is there a, a pride street. thing? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Like, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, we're doing this with two. We know that's probably not how it should be, but we're going to, we're going to deal with it anyway. And we're just going to, to be a Charleston, to be a city of Charleston firefighter was a badge of honor. Every department thinks they're the best. Everybody, you know, you all have those departments. You, you know, I don't say you look down on, but you're like, yeah, hey, I'm glad I'm a part of this one and not that one. And that's, there's no different with us. You know, North Charleston Fire Department fought more fucking fire than we did. Those sons of bitches, but, but we would never tell you that. You know what I mean? Them motherfuckers fought. Goddamn. Holy shit. They stayed in the fire, but we wouldn't tell you that. We'd be like, shit, we fight more than them. You know, it's just, and that's just how it is. You just brag, but the tradition that we had, man, we were a proud, 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 proud bunch. I loved being a Charleston fireman. It fucking how, killed me when I had to leave there. How, uh, going from what you just dealt with, with North Char Charleston PD to going back, kind of, kind of back home. I mean, how, 
how was that feeling for you? Amazing weight off your shoulders. It was like, so every day I went to uh, work as a police officer, you're worried about being fired every day. You're worried about, all right, if I say the wrong thing today, I'm going to have to explain myself. If my report is not absolutely 100%, you got to think too, we'll go on three, four, four, five fucking calls and then have to go back and write reports. And you got to remember exactly what happened on every single call to a fucking T. It's so fucking difficult. Sometimes you don't have you're time. Gonna, you're going to be brought into court for it. Chances yeah, are. and you got to make sure it's right. There's no room for fucking error. So sometimes you're trying to knock out a report, but you get called on a on a on a chase. You get, hey, we got a fucking murder suspect. We need everybody going. Okay, so now you're going, or you got a an officer who's ten ten that's in a fight down the street. You got to go to that. And so sometimes your reports get backed up. You got five, six, seven. You got to remember every fucking detail. You know what I mean? Because sure. if you have to go to court and defend this shit, there's a lot of stress with that. Dude, I went back being a fireman. You know what I had to worry about? Absolutely nothing. What's for breakfast? <laughs> That's, hey, what's for lunch? We're in the middle of breakfast, Travis. Yeah, but what are we going to do for lunch? Yes. That's a good problem to have, bro. Absolutely. So, yeah, man, it's, it's almost like I can, uh, I would think it would be like from being married to going single. It'd be like, holy fuck, this is great. i just said what everybody else is thinking don't even (laughs) i like how you didn't even say anything (laughs) no comment another pretend question here if the sofa super factory uh if that never happened would you still be a firefighter yes never without a doubt in my mind i just um so I stayed after the sofa superstore fire, I stayed two and a half years. I fully intended on being 30 year firefighter. You know, I'd already, already had three years in the system. And then was, was, that, was Camden uh, or not Camden. Uh, I don't know. Left was, uh, was the police pension the same as the fire one or was that two seconds? Oh, so, yeah. So as a total, I was in the system three, four, five, ten and a half years. All right. Okay. Before I left. All right. But as a firefighter, um, you know, I had split time. I was three with Bluffton, five and a half in Charleston. So eight and a half years total as a firefighter, two years as a police officer. Yeah. So 10 and a half years I'm sitting here counting my fingers. I'm like, make sure my math is right. Um, that, yeah, all in the same. Where'd you get the half at? I stayed for an extra half year. No, I'm just kidding. I was fingers. Oh, never mind. I'm, I'm trying to be a jokester of a comedian. And that, that didn't, that didn't work. Dude. That was no, funny. I got booed leave, off stage. Leave, leave the jokes to me. Um, so I, I, um, I promoted from assistant engineer to engineer. I'd I'd made the promotional list right before I had to leave the fire department from my injuries. And I could have left man right after that. So superstore fire, I mean, I, I knew I was not going to be, um, the same again. I didn't realize how bad it was going to get for me, but we had a lot of guys leaving. They were like, "I, I just can't even fucking come back after this. I mean, we lost, I don't know the numbers, but our turnover rate was like nobody had ever seen. I mean, we lost well over half our department in the first year. I mean, guys, it was like mass exodus. It was people, guys had been on the job 30 years that were just, they were just like, fuck this. I'm, I'm out. I'm leaving. Guys that had been on 20 years, like I'm done. I'm, I'm 10 years. I'm done. I just, that fire fucked a lot of people up. Um, I stayed, I had this, 
this arrogant pride about me that I'm going to, I'm going to ride this, ride this rig for my brothers and I'm going to honor them. I'm going to become a captain. I'm going to protect my crew. Um, but the, the truth is I got sick after that and I got very mentally ill and it got to a point where I wasn't honoring them. I was actually doing them more of a disservice than I was a service, no matter how hard I tried, but I fully intended on staying for 30 years. When you say ill, you're talking about the, the alcohol, you're talking about the anger. No, I'm talking about the, the depression, depression the, okay. the PTSD, the survivor's guilt. I didn't believe in all that stuff before all of this. And uh, it took me getting diagnosed and really realizing through my behavioral patterns and just how destructive I was being in my life, my, my um, not wanting to live anymore, talking about all of that. And all of that reflected eventually would reflect on the emergency scenes I would go to. I mean, I, I became combat ineffective, man. And it was, uh, it's not an easy thing to say. I would show up on scenes and just look at people that were hurting and wouldn't even treat them just kind of in my mind, like, yeah, fuck them. You know what I mean? And it's everywhere I went, I saw my dead friends that, you know, that I had to pull out of that fire and it was, it fucks you up, man. And, but despite all that, I tried staying on the job and then, but, the um i don't think this is the right point in the in the podcast to talk about it but we'll get to it it's uh when everything came to a head for me is uh cost me my career all right now touching on that fire i know uh, you weren't assigned to it you ended up showing up anyway um, which, I mean, that's, that's what happens. You know, you look at, you know, nine 11, it didn't matter if you're off duty, you were showing up. So same, same idea here. Um, you go into great detail in your book about this. And I, I can't say enough about uh, reading that. And, and I've also had the pleasure of having your friend, Dave Griffin on the show and, and also seeing him talk live. So, um, really almost getting two perspectives of the same incident was, was, uh, very, very, very powerful. Um, you know, so just having you talked earlier about having to go, you know, have a call and then basically back to normal, you know, you're going to take runs again, you know, almost move on from, uh, you know, you're forced to move on from what you just went through, all the traumatic events that's going to follow you for decades later on. And now you're, you're back on the apparatus and you're taking calls again. What, what was that like? Stack it on the pile, man. You ain't got time. You, you just don't have time in our business to sit around and dwell and feel sorry for yourself because you got a job to do. And that's what fucks us up. There's no decompression time. So for me, to keep a long story relatively short, um, without going into too too much detail, you're right. I, I was I was off duty that day, but I was right down the street because the guy we talked about, Shane, who had gotten me the job at Charleston Fire, he was killed four months to the day prior. 
And we were honoring him at a golf tournament right down the street when we found out about the Sofa Superstore fire. Um, being that it wasn't too far away, a lot of the firefighters, we left that golf tournament and went straight there. And you're right. I, the first person I saw on scene was my buddy, David Griffin, who was um, the engineer or assistant engineer first on scene of engine with engine 11 pumping the fire. And when I arrived, you know, we found out Lewis, my buddy Lewis was inside missing. And, and at that time, I don't remember how many we thought were missing. I want to say it was closer to 20 is what we thought 18 or 19 guys that we thought were inside that they, they had zero accountability over uh, and it, that number dwindled down to nine being confirmed but um yeah my job that night and I could I do go into detail about what I saw and how it how it moved me in the book um ultimately I was assigned to the body recovery team there were 15 or 20 of us on on different teams I don't remember exactly the the the, the hard number on how many guys but it, there wasn't a whole lot of us in there the majority of the guys stayed outside and and, and they were doing whatever they were doing outside. I, I don't know because I was inside. Um, but we searched in that building all night, literally until the next morning. And uh, my my shift started the next morning from the Soka Superstore fire from that site. And after we had um, found all of our guys, we, we identified them the best we could. They were all um, in very bad shape. There was no positive ID except for one. Um, the others were more of a speculation kind of thing. And then they were later identified through the coroner's office. Um, she did a GPS um, location of each body where they fell. And then, you know, they handled that stuff on their end. But anyhow, when we went in that night, we found them all. Lewis was the last one that we, that we found my buddy. And, um, you know, we knew that was him because we had, we had pretty much identified the guys that, were there the best way that we could. Um, and we had a really good feeling of who was who. And Lewis was definitely the last one we pulled him out. And to answer your question, I had to get back on the rig that morning after just putting our guys in the body bag and go do a, do a complete shift 24 hours out of a pretty busy house. And you didn't have time to process this. It's like, hey, let's go back the rig in. I've been up all night working. I got there around 7.30 that evening. I worked all night until the next morning, so 12, 13 hours on site. Get back on the rig, and you're taking calls. You know, I was a ladder company at the time. I was on ladder five at the time, and um, we're rolling. We're going to fires. We're going to car wrecks. We're going to EMS calls. We're doing whatever we got to do after you just saw your buddies burn up beyond recognition, you know, and it's um, – now you're going to more worse days of people's lives and stacking that on top of the piles too. And over the, over the years, you go to suicides, you go to murders, you go to all these, these fucking scenes and you just keep stacking that up and stacking that up and stacking that up. And eventually it, it either gets the best of you or it doesn't, man. I don't know how some of these guys uh, stay on the job, but everybody on that team that night, I'm, I know they're they're no longer there. Maybe with the exception of one. I mean, you can't. I don't know how you mentally are even capable of doing that, of staying after seeing what we saw inside that building. It's it's one thing as an emergency responder to respond to strangers, and that 
that has a whole different effect on you, but it's another when it's your people and you see them in the condition we saw them in, they weren't just dead. They were mutilated by this fire. I mean, it doesn't matter what words I use, it will never, ever, ever drive home what we saw inside of there, ever. It doesn't, you can't pick the perfect words to describe what we found. So that does something to you, man. It, it fucks you up when you sleep. It fucks you up when you drive. It fucks you up when you're sitting in your fire station and these flashes of your guys come across. I can remember the exact body position every single one of them is in. I can remember exactly where I was when I saw them, how they were, the emotions that I was having. And I describe that in a book. Um, it's, it's very powerful. It consumes you. It takes over you. And it takes time. Like we say, this has taken 13 years since that incident for me to really start talking about it. You know, that's a long time. And it still fucks with me today. I still see it. But now it's what we get back to when I, when I talk about ownership and acceptance. I can let it control me or I can let it make me better. I've chosen the latter. Now, back then, there was no, correct me if I'm wrong, please. There wasn't really any peer support. There wasn't any clinicians on staff for you waiting. Uh, no. I just feel like in today's age, same fire, 2020, been handled a lot differently as far as the, the aftermath. Well, I'm going to tell you what they would do today. And I know this without a, without a shadow of a doubt. I think... What they would do today is if your department had that happen, I don't even think they would let your guys go and get your guys. I think that would be a mutual aid situation. Of course, we want to go get our guys. Those are our dudes. But knowing what we know now and how severely that will fuck you up, you got to think about the well-being. So if you guys lost nine, you essentially think if you send nine more in there, you're losing 18. Does that make sense? It does. Where you send in brother firefighters from another agency who necessarily don't have relationships with these people. It's a whole different thing. The chief that sent us in that night, I love him to death. I saw him not long ago and he actually apologized for making that call. He said, Travis, I know that that hurt you guys. And he goes and, and I feel remorse for asking y'all to go in there. And I told him, I said, chief, I said, don't, I said, you can't feel guilty for that. I said, you know us. We wouldn't have let you send anybody else. We're going to get our dudes. That's just how it was. And I say it, uh, I, I say this, man, the hardest decision I ever made is uh, one of the biggest regrets I have in life is volunteering to go inside. But one of the biggest honors I have is volunteering to go inside and pull them out. But I think today's society, yet yeah, not only would they have critical incident stress debriefing teams on site, I mean, immediately, you guys don't have a choice. Come here, sit down. Let's go ahead and get this off before it piles up. What'd you see? How do you feel? What can we do? Give you two weeks off, a month off with pay when you have to go through something like that because we didn't have that option. All we went is to the next call, to the next trauma and doing the, doing the whole stacking effect. We didn't have people to talk to. It was, it was weeks or months before they tried, they didn't really know what to do. They were scrambling. They knew people were going to be fucked up and needed help. So they sent down some firefighters from like some of the Worcester guys came down, some FDNY guys came down and it helped because you can talk to like-minded people who've experienced things, but it's, there was no real program in place, if you will. 
that guys trusted. Now there's, we have the Low Country Firefighter Support Team here, and they are fucking phenomenal, man. They have, dude, I can't imagine the, the amount of people that they've saved. I'm one of them. But uh, now, not only cops, paramedics, I mean, family members, they, if you need to talk, they have counselors and they have a reputation now, 13 years in the making of, of helping. And so now people are more susceptible to reach out to them versus when we were first introduced, like, Hey, here's a team of people. If you want to talk and we're like, we don't fucking know who these people are. Have, have you ever talked, spoke to like the recruits? I didn't. Now, now that you, now it's a little bit longer than a week. Um, now it's a week and, and three days. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Have it's you like, been able like, to, like to share your, it's like how long? It's, I think it's 20 – I was just talking with the chief of Charleston Fire yesterday. I think it's 27-week-long re- recruit class. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's real, real fucking real nice. deal now. But they'll, yeah, they'll bring I, um, you in, and, and you're able to share your experiences, and you're able to kill that stigma that being able yeah. to reach out right then and there. Right off the rip. So I talked to the last class that just graduated uh, right before they graduated, and there were 30 or 40 of them. And I told them I didn't hold back. I spoke for an hour and a half. Dr. David Griffin was there, uh, but he's still a friend of mine. And he, um, he had me come in and speak to him. And I told them, look, if you're not ready to be exposed to this, here's, here's the truth. This ain't backdraft. This ain't ladder 49. There's some horrible shit that you may be faced with on this job that you're not going to be trained for. Right. We're trained to, set up monitors we're set up we're trained to establish water supply we're we're trained to establish the abcs and medical calls what we're not trained for is when you're waking up in the middle of the night wanting to grab that pistol and shoot yourself because of the the horrors that you're seeing when you're sleeping the alcohol the um the shunning of everybody in your life the turning into a complete monster if you will we're not trained for that mm-hmm. nor can how do you train for something like that other than having somebody who's been there and done it come and talk to you about it? There's no fucking manual for that, you know? Suck it up. That's what we're taught. And that's what we do. Hmm. All right, with that, I think we're going to end this episode. And we're going to have a third-part episode. First, three-part series. How do you this think? This is the first one? That? This is the second one. Second three-part series? Well, that, that we just finished episode two. Now I'm going to start episode three here. No, but you're saying you're, this is the first podcast that you've done with three episodes? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Is that okay? 12. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, that's cool. So let me stop it and we'll start again. Cool? Cool. Oh.